Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He said, Carol, I have a pornography compulsion, and I don't know if it's a problem because men look at porn, and now women are too. But I want to know What's the criteria for whether it's a problem or not? Well, I saved this email because clearly what I want you to know is that we have an expert on the show tonight. He's amazing. He has made it his mission to study pornography addiction. And he's going to talk about the fact that pornography is such a huge part of our culture. And yet, Oftentimes it's secretive, and it's overlooked as a severe problem in many people's lives. So in this interview, we're going to be exploring the difference between pornography use and pornography addiction, as well as Greg's going to be talking about how pornography has escalated the already problematic toxic masculinity that has been harmful to all genders. Woven into many themes of pornography are emotions such as anger, hurt, shame, inadequacy, eroticized rage, you name it. And so we're going to talk about how do you know when you are using pornography to deal with a strong emotion that you haven't processed. So I can't wait for him to come on the show. You know, I got to tell you, this is, this is a Carol the Coachism. This is not a CSATism at all. And when I say CSAT, I know that many of you understand that being a CSAT means that we're certified sexual addiction therapists. And we really work hard at not um, pathologizing behavior if it's not problematic. Now, 
what I know to be true is that there is a certain segment of the population that are absolutely devastated by pornography. It has opened and kept open the gateway to certain neural pathways that do not allow them to function well. And even though we've been taught to be porn neutral, I have a personal bias about it. I mean, I just don't think any time we sexualize and objectify men or women, most of the time women, not really. A lot of women are watching porn these days. Um, when we are objectifying people, we're taking away from the humanness, the humanness that makes them sacred. So I'm not a proponent of pornography. I don't see anything positive about it. I say spend that time cultivating relationships. You know, if you aren't in a relationship, then for goodness sakes, go volunteer somewhere. Get a dog, you know. Do something that makes you feel good about mankind. Now, Greg may have a totally different opinion. That is the beautiful thing about this show is that we can agree to disagree. And when I started as a CSAT, I was porn neutral because there are certain people that do not appear to be impacted in any way, shape, or form. And certainly I studied with a lot of sexologists that said, hey, if you want to spice up your sex life, watch porn. And I'm not saying that that doesn't activate the arousal template, because I believe it does. But the reality is, I want to train you to focus on your partner. And if you're a single person and you don't have a partner, I used to say early on in my professional career, you know, masturbation and porn allows you to not need somebody else so that you can take care of your own physiological needs so that when, when you do need a partner, uh, you'll really be ready. You won't jump into a relationship if you're not ready. I don't say that anymore either. Not that I think masturbation is wrong. I believe that most people cannot masturbate without objectifying others, without reverting back to what they've seen in pornography. So it becomes a very slippery slope. And so I say, you know, it's not that I want a single person not to be able to please themselves. But I do think there are other ways of pleasing the body that are not going to objectify. Go in for a good massage. Get some great reflexology. You know, I mean, there are plenty of things you can do that will keep you in tune with your body. Okay, I'm going to be asking Greg about this. He doesn't even know that, but I am because, again, one of the things I know is that I'm certainly open to other people's ideas. And my ideas have changed. Like I said, I used to be porn neutral. Now I'm not. I used to be, it's okay to masturbate um, and look at porn. Now I'm not. And I also know that you all have to come up with what is comfortable for you. 
I would never want to impose my beliefs on you. I only share my recommendations, and then guess what? It is all up to you to decide what works for you. I'm not a bully. I don't want to um, coerce you into thinking something other than what you believe is true for you. So to the man that sent me the email, I would say, hey, that probably depends on how you feel about yourself, your body, your values, and your relationships. And that is a cure all the coachism. Now, let me tell you, before Craig comes on, I am so, so stoked. My Help Her Heal online course is officially up. It was actually up last week, and I didn't like how it looked on my website. And so my webmaster did a beautiful job of putting it together. And, and so if you want to just take a preview, go to www.helpherheelonlinecourse. It's on the homepage. It's on the products page. It shows you, it runs down the curriculum. I do a video where I describe what you'll be getting. And uh, there's a special discount until November 24th. So if you've read the book, but you want to get more of a flavor of what I believe, it's like I'm your own personal therapist. Hey, that's, that's not a bad idea, is it? And um, so I go through the chapters, and I talk about them, and I have PowerPoints, and I have columns, and I have articles, and I have video, and I have podcasts, and I have YouTubes. I mean, I really put hours and hours and hours and hours of information together, and I think you'll find it really helpful. And I encourage you to watch it by yourself. And then if you're in partnership with somebody, watch it with your partner. It's great for added dialogue. And then if you're, um, if you just want to watch it separately and have your partner watch it separately, that works too. Because I guarantee you, it will start dialogue. And it's all about really creating empathy. And you cannot have empathy unless you're talking to each other. So please go to www.sexhealthwithcarolthecoach.com and at least check out the preview. Just take a look at that. And you know me, I never do commercials for myself, but I got to tell you, I also am creating a post-traumatic growth online course for women for partner betrayal to get them to that third stage of the restoration phase of um, getting healthy after trauma. And I am almost done with that. Not really. Uh, I, I am almost done with the course, but I am interviewing partners and we're getting some videotape on that too. So that should be good too. So I have just been in this creative frenzy, and I am so happy to be contributing it, contributing so that it will help your life be a little bit easier. And that's what I got to say about that. So, you know, one of the things that I truly believe is that we are all in this together. You know, I was talking with a group of men 
couple of days ago, and um, they were talking about how difficult sexual addiction can be because it activates that reward center, and when they when they slow that down, they gain weight, or when they slow that down, they smoke more cigarettes, or when they slow that down, they want to gamble. Well, if you know brain science and you know neuropathways, you understand that the brain is craving dopamine and is looking for all sorts of ways to get it. Now, there are healthy ways to create dopamine, which is the happy chemical in the brain, but there's also ways to substitute dopamine with oxytocin, which is the drug, if you will. It's the relationship drug. It's the empathy drug. It's the I want to get closer to you drug. And so that's why I tell people, when you're miserable, give back. That's what Patrick Carnes says. He says, do the 12 steps. Contribute. Contribute to your life by giving to others. And I was listening to Wayne Dyer today because you know my... Um, my pattern, my routine is that I get up and I go work out and I always, always, always listen to an informative, inspirational, motivational podcast. It's how I get myself going. And I was listening to Wayne Dyer. And he and Marianne Williamson, who is a Course in Miracles um, guru, they were talking about the fact that it is imperative uh, even in the Tao, it says that really anybody who's afflicted with any kind of addiction or uh, unhealthy behavior needs to substitute that with thinking of others, with giving back. And boy, doesn't that make sense? I mean, sex addiction is such a self-absorbed, selfish, self-interested addiction. It has to be. That's why you stay in that secrecy. And so when you're really working on your recovery tools and you're learning how to manage your sexual addiction, when you go through the steps, if you choose the 12-step program, that 12-step is giving back. Because ultimately, as Patrick Carnes says in his podcast with me, he says, Carol, You almost can't self-actualize the way you need to unless you're suffering. And sex addiction causes great suffering. And when somebody then goes to connection and fellowship and feels that oxytocin again, that, that relationship chemical in the brain, then automatically one, one is likely to transform into wanting to give back, wanting to do for others. And that's, the full circle of sexual addiction recovery. We'll have to ask Greg what he thinks because as I said, he is an expert on pornography and sexual addiction and emotions and I can't wait for him to tell us what it's like uh, for the addicts that he works with to have to manage their emotions in different ways. So Greg Woodhill, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm so well, Carol. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. You know, I was so excited about this because so many people 
feel that pornography is not that big of a deal and it doesn't hurt anybody. And, you know, you and I both know that maybe for some people it doesn't. But for people that are prone to sexual addiction, it can actually be the gateway to lots of other behaviors. And even Mm -hmm. if it doesn't take you to that next level, it keeps you in isolation. So I wanted to ask you a few questions tonight about your views on pornography. How did you get involved in sex addiction and and pornography? Well, thanks for that question, Carol. Like, uh, you know, when I was just beginning as a therapist over a decade ago, I was so interested in what I had seen in, you know, I've had a lot of male friends throughout my life in the effect that I've seen pornography having in their lives. I saw what I would call that it had hooks, hooks in their brain, that people would make decisions based on pornography. They would uh, make relationship decisions and decisions, decisions about their marriage. Um, do I go? Do I not go? Do I want to go to this family event? Or could this be a time where I can stay home and watch pornography all night? And so I started mm-hmm. to study and read about it and Uh, The more I read and the more I learned, the more visceral and and interesting it became until I got uh, introduced at one point to Alexander Katahakis, who became my uh, longtime mentor and boss when I worked at the Center for Healthy Sex. And I just realized that this is an addiction. All of the sexual addiction that you talk about here on your show is so – a lot of the time, it's so shame-based, and if I worked with addicts with this addiction, there was a chance for intimacy in these therapeutic relationships that just felt so much deeper and beyond anything I had ever imagined possible because we're talking about such deep, meaningful things in the person's life. So the pornography side of it is something that I have just I have found more and more men coming to me for help, and my interest level has always been so piqued about – I was so interested in what you were just saying a few minutes ago about the oxytocin when men – or when people, I should say, but I work with mostly men – go to meetings, and they start interacting with other people, and it starts to take the shame away from what they're feeling when they're isolated in this addiction. So the more I worked with sex and porn addicts, the more excited I became to work with them because I have found them so earnest – and so open and vulnerable in our sessions and just dying for communication on a real authentic level, which to me, that connection is the opposite of addiction. And I'm sure you've seen some of that in your career, that people are isolating and they are soothing and numbing and medicating with pornography some of the time. So to get in the room with another person and have that connection, it really is the antithesis of what their addiction has brought into their lives, if that makes sense. Well, 100%. As a matter of fact, you and I both believe that connection is the antidote for addiction. And so obviously pornography robs a person from that ability to connect. And, and that's why we wanted to talk tonight about the different emotions that yeah. oh, it, it might medicate or it might help you to avoid. And, and 
I was telling our listening audience earlier, we're both CSATs, we're both certified sexual addiction therapists, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, we've been taught to be porn neutral. And I said, mm. I'm not porn neutral. I, I started out like that, but I have watched it chip away at the intimacy fiber, if you will, of mm-hmm. the person. And so... You know, I would love to believe that it doesn't hurt, and I'm sure there are plenty of people it doesn't hurt, but boy, it's like, would I just let everybody go out there and do cocaine, even if there are some people who don't get addicted? No. Yeah, right, right. You wouldn't, sure. So I want to ask you, if someone watches porn, does that mean they're an addict? What do you think? Great question. (laughs) Um, No, no, it doesn't. I am, I'm really, I'm with you on the abuses in the industry of pornography and the abuses that happen out here in the terrestrial world because of pornography. I know all about both of those. And so morally or ethically or in a religious way, I don't tell people that they should or shouldn't watch pornography or that it's a sin or that it's bad or wrong. But I agree with you 100% that it is near impossible for someone to separate what they're watching over and over and over again for, you know, days, months, years, decades from what their brain encodes as what they are turned on to their arousal template. And as you asked a moment ago, their emotions. So people watch pornography, men and women. Uh, uh, the, the biggest problem and one of my missions is to get people talking about it more. Uh, I think the biggest problem is we just don't talk about it. It tends to be in general, something that is kept pretty underground. People, people really feel like it's, you know, a a secretive part of their life that they don't want to share with anybody. However, unless they are having a preoccupation with it, or if they have impulses that they over and over again, they fail to resist. Like I, 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 I want to watch porn all the time, but I'm not going to. But then they find themselves doing it over and over again. They're losing time because they're just doing it so much. They try to stop and they can't. Um, and then they ignore important things in their life or more to the point, important people in their life get ignored so that they can participate in their drug of choice, which is sex. Now, the biggest neon, bold-faced, flashing Um, criteria for sex addiction, I'm sorry, for sex and porn addiction is, in my opinion, an inability to stop despite harmful consequences. Over and over again, it's hurting my school, it's hurting my relationship, it's hurting my physical self, it's hurting my spiritual life, it's hurting my friendships, it's hurting my job, but I just keep doing it. To me, that is addiction in a nutshell. So, That what we're talking about is when we start to assess for, is this an addictive thing in your life? Not just something that because you do it and because there's shame around it, it means you're an addict. And two quick other things, Carol, that I know you know, that porn addicts that I work with have reported to me over the last 10 plus years that the tolerance that we see in chemical addiction is measured in uh, uh, um, volume, meaning mm-hmm. I used to drink 
five beers and I would get drunk. Then it took 10. Then it took 10 beers plus Jack Daniels whiskey because their body is adapting. Now, in porn addiction, tolerance is measured by variety. Variety. My brain is bored with seeing the same quote-unquote vanilla or the same scenes or the same performers. I need something a little different, a little more dangerous, a little more visceral, a little more violent, and that is what creates sometimes people watching pornography that is traumatizing them as they're watching it just because they need a higher high, if that makes sense. Oh, 100%. You know, they are really doing a lot of um, publicizing Katie Couric, who has been Mm. interviewing our favorite expert on adolescent porn, Gail Dines. And I say ours Mm -hmm. because she has certainly done many workshops for us on how dad's porn is not today's porn. And today's porn is about violence and it is about gang banging and it is about pain and suffering and asphyxiation and and even sometimes death. And so it escalates and that's what you're talking about. A man may not mean to gravitate to that porn, but after a while, that porn seems vanilla, so they take it one notch uh, greater. And, and before they know right. it, they're looking at things they would never have looked at 10 years ago. That's right. And I've actually heard, Carol, clients of mine throughout the years, one, uh, I loved this guy. And uh, I, I, have, you know, I haven't seen him for many years, but he was in a group I used to run. And he said, I can't unsee some of the images I've seen. I can't unsee. He said, eventually he, and this is a really extreme case, to be clear, he was gravitating toward things that were just violent, that weren't even pornography anymore, but it's what he needed. Now, like I said, that is on the far extreme you know, end of the spectrum, but it got to the point where you know, what you called and I called here vanilla pornography isn't interesting to that person's brain because the dopamine receptors have become so blunted. That doesn't happen in my experience, I should say, in my clinical experience, with somebody who casually watches pornography from time to time, somebody who watches it maybe once a week or once a month, they're not coming in saying, oh my gosh, I'm just gravitating toward these very violent things and I, and I need to stop. Uh, that comes much more with addiction. And if you go to the, the streaming services, the hubs, as it were, uh, what is just sort of now happening or most popular, now you see a lot of those taboo things, like you just said, aggressive or violent or interfami- interfamily uh, incest type of pornography. Those type of things, that's like the starting gate now on these search engines. When you just go see like, okay, I'm just going to see what's popular right now. You're seeing things that are so taboo that would have you know, like you said, your father's porn 15, 20, 25 years ago, those things would have been like outlandish or some people might have considered them illegal. Now that's the starting gate that people find when they just go search out porn. So it's changing and it's morphing because the the needs and the view, when you give people streaming porn for free, high speed streaming porn, as much as they want for zero dollars, um, yeah, their attitude, I mean, they're, 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 um, they're salivating for something that's new and different. And from the time you and I started this conversation here tonight, there's been, what, 10, 50, 100 new clips put up. It's just, it's infinite. It's constantly evolving. And that is a scary thing. 
Oh, absolutely. So then I heard you say, no, if somebody watches porn, that does not mean they're an addict. But people that watch porn may have a propensity for needing to go to more intense um, types of pornography that become more and more destructive. And so yes. isolation affects intimacy. Um, mm-hmm. Looking at porn that is violent affects intimacy. There's certainly not a connection there. Mm-hmm. What do you think is mm-hmm. the difference between a porn viewer and a porn addict? Mm-hmm. I would bring it down to it's it's more complicated than just this one this, but I want to double down on um, it's hurting them, it's hurting them, and they keep doing it. To me, I would say, and like you know, there are diagnostic criteria and there's self assessments online that you and I refer people to. However, to me, that's the difference: somebody who watches it versus somebody who can't stop, and. If if you can't stop eating healthy foods uh, from day to day, you're like, hey, I just keep eating uh, broccoli and nice, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, healthy grains and vitamins and fruit and things like that. I'd say, well, that's a pretty great thing that you can't stop doing. But when you're doing something that you, like you just said, takes them into isolation and potentially shame and other uh, emotions, which I think we'll talk about. Um, that to me is when is when I start to say I think that's the difference between a porn viewer and a porn addict is somebody who it's hurting them and they can't stop and their appetite for deeper, darker, more visceral material has been growing and, and they can see that. Okay, so now obviously when people come to me and they say, do you think porn's dangerous or mm-hmm. you have a couple come in and he says, porn is not dangerous, and she's saying, yes, it is. I want to know, what do you think? Would that be a word you would term for pornography? Do you see it as being dangerous? Mm. For many people, yes. Yeah, for a lot of people. I've said for a long time, my little uh, catchphrase is that pornography is kryptonite to intimacy. It if somebody had a, um, a life with pornography and they shared that openly and honestly with their partner, then that's one thing. What I mean by that is that there's an open, honest communication. They can decide, is this okay for our relationship or is it not? Um, and, uh, and is it cheating and, or is it not? And that's a couple-to-couple decision. Is it dangerous? Yeah, I've seen it be dangerous to a whole hell of a lot of people. So I'd say I've seen it be dangerous to enough people that I would say in general, I really would warn anybody um, against developing a habit with it. And I'll tell you who it's oof, worse than dangerous for Carol, in my opinion, is, is oh, God, kids and teenagers. Um, mm-hmm. I am uh, in my mid-40s, and I am so grateful that when I was a teen, uh, there was no such thing as uh, that we knew of. There was no internet. There was no high-speed internet. And anything that was pornographic, you would either flip the page, you know, and look at it in a magazine at a still photo, or it was a videotape where you might rewind it or watch it once or hide it or whatever. We just didn't have this. And, um, you know, virtually all of my friends who are parents have come to me with the same stories. Like, what do I tell my kid? Because I just, you know, I looked at his iPad or I walked in the room and he was watching pornography. Yes, 
it is dangerous and poisonous, in my opinion, to people that are, I don't even know what the age might be, but just to be, you know, just to pick a number, I would say, below the age of 18, um, and even a little above 18, because our brains cannot handle it. So I'd say it's, it's not just dangerous, but poisonous, because if you let a 16-year-old boy or girl watch pornography and said, hey, just so you know, this isn't real. This isn't what it really is like. And they said, okay, thanks for telling me, but they keep watching it. Their brain doesn't know the difference. Their brain is wiring their arousal template uh, around an experience that, first of all, it's isolating. They're not participating. They're in complete control. There's nobody in the room. It's high, high dopamine, uh, sorry, high dopamine, high adrenaline. And so I would say that that is more than dangerous uh, to young people and, and, and their desire to look at it, in my opinion, is healthy. A young person wanting to see naked people that they're attracted to, that's a healthy drive. The problem is mm-hmm. they're getting uh, – it's like they're saying I'm thirsty and then they put their mouth and they're drinking out of a fire hose. How can they handle all that's coming out then? They can't. Their brain is not ready for it. So, oh, so you know, bless. I, I'm, I'm terrified, and I'm right here standing on the sidelines to help um, these generations that are now in their 20s and those that are, are teens now because it is dangerous in wiring their brain around uh, this is what sex is, and this is how men or women should be treated, and this is – because it paints a picture, Carol, and I don't need to tell you this. It, it is self-involved. It is a, a one person getting sexual pleasure at the um, um, – I'm not, I, I'm not coming up with the perfect word here, but it's, 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 it's only for their own pleasure and not for the other person at the expense. That's the word I was looking for. It's someone getting pleasure at the expense of someone else. So it's a very, very phallocentric and very self-driven, um, uh, self-centered way of looking at sex. And to me, yes, if that is how people are being conditioned to want sex out and about in the real world, that is dangerous. Well, absolutely. So I'm just curious, Greg, when you have a parent who um, is concerned for their kids, I mean, when I started in 2007 as a CSAT, the stats were by the time a boy was 11, he had seen over 20 hours of porn. And now I've heard that that's tripled. And that's because Uh, of 2019. Have you heard any stats or what what do you think? No, you know, I don't, I read statistics and it's just the way my brain works. And I wish it were different that when I hear statistics like that, I roll my eyes and I say, yes, of course. And that's horrible, but I don't really like, I don't collect statistics, but I love to hear them from other people. Um, As you and I know, there are people who provide statistics trying to disprove sex and porn addiction. And of course I can't stomach that. Uh, uh, So, um, but I hear it and and I hear so much anecdotal evidence that makes me very sad and very scared because mm-hmm. what will it be like? I mean, I don't – how much more can they get? It's, it's terrifying to me because I think, if anything, 
It would also, it's arousing, it's scary, I would have to guess, for kids at the age you're talking about. And I think that there's an amount of shame that they're feeling at the time um, because it's secretive. It's something they can't just tell their parents, hey, I'm going to watch porn right now. It's something they're hiding and they feel ashamed about. So all of those things are getting wired in. But um, yes, I see. I mean, you walk about, we all walk around the world. I look around, whether we're in an elevator, in a subway, in a bank, or or wherever we are in an, a waiting room, everybody's on their phone. And that's true for kids as well, unfortunately. So I think it just keeps going up and up, and that terrifies me. Yeah, good point. So now I want to ask you, do you uh, condone or sanction parents being able to um, monitor their kids' laptop and phone use? Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Not only do I condone and sanction it, uh, I think it's mandatory, mandatory. Uh, and and that includes, um, I don't know a lot about apps like Snapchat or, um, you know, there are, of course, online uh, so, um, resources and, and uh, web um, communities like Reddit, but uh, I think a parent should know everything their kid is doing online. I just think it's it's and if we call that militaristic or we call that big brother, it's it's at the risk of of them having this secret life that is damaging their young brain. And so, yep, absolutely. I think every parent, and I don't think it should be secretive. I think they should and and more than anything, I think parents need to tell their children that which I said, you know, a few minutes here ago to you, which is. There's nothing wrong with your desire. You want to look at body parts. You want to look at naked women, naked men. There's nothing wrong with your desire to do it. It's okay. You're okay. However, what you're going to find on there is going to be so bad on your brain, and it's going to harm your future relationships. It's going to harm intimacy, and therefore, I need to, as your parent who loves you, I need to be aware of everything you're looking at. That's how I would frame it. Not, it's bad, it's wrong, you're, you know, or shame them if you catch them with it. I think it has to be couched in that way of, uh, there's nothing wrong with you wanting it, but it's so poisonous to you at this age and maybe even an older age that, that I need to know where you're going online, what apps you're using. And thank God these days for parents, as I understand it, there's so many monitoring apps um, that literally tell them how many minutes the kid has spent on the phone, what they've looked at, what websites and what apps they've been using so that parents can do it remotely. They don't have to be looking over the kid's shoulder, but a hundred percent, I think that's necessary, Carol. Well, and I like the fact that you, like I, both say that parents need to be honest with their kids, too. And so it's not that they should secretly spy on their children. They need to say, <laughs> right. look, if you want a phone and you want a laptop or you want an iPad, it comes with knowing that I get to see what you're viewing. And when you're 18, yeah, that's right. that'll change, not before. That's right. Sure. <laughs> okay, so now you actually believe that porn, like I do, affects intimacy, and I'm wondering what you feel in terms of how do you believe it affects the coupleship? What happens when porn is in the middle of two people's relationship? Yeah, well, everything I've heard and read and studied uh, points to the fact that 
an abundance of porn use by either partner or both partners, it puts a wall up neurologically and then metaphorically a wall in between the people. What I find more than anything is that if one person is addicted to pornography or let's even just say a heavy user of pornography, without realizing it, it is creating a sense of the partner, the one not watching the pornography, of feeling unattractive and rejected and pushed away. I've heard that over and over again. So one partner is having their sexual needs taken care of, so to speak, behind closed doors, and they really don't have a libido in real life with their partner, and that partner feels it. So like a lot of partners in a lot of situations, they start to feel like it's their fault. Incorrectly and unfortunately, they start to feel like it's their fault. And to me, it I have talked to so many of the men I've worked with who identify as porn addicts when they are able to stop and become sober by working a program, which I know you pitch on this show, they are able to, for the potentially the first time in their life, they are able to see and feel the intimacy in their relationship and with other people, you know, healthy intimacy, even outside of their relationship, but actual romantic sexual intimacy um, that they can have with their partner because they're no longer shooting, you know, metaphorically shooting Novocaine into themselves every day, that they can show up and their, their emotions and their brain and their heart are actually there in the room. So it just drives a wedge between people there. And on top of all of that, a person who is heavily using porn or addicted to porn is also hiding it. So, I've had clients ask me, many clients, can I have intimacy in my relationship if I don't tell, if I just keep doing it but don't tell my, my spouse that I'm watching porn, can we, though, still have intimacy? My answer, and there might be those who disagree with this and that'd be fine, is no, you can't. You, because I define intimacy as I want to know all of who you are I want you to know all of who I am, and we're going to love each other to the core of who we are because of that. That's intimacy. So if you are hiding a secret, whether it's chemical addiction, any kind of sexual addiction, gambling addiction, dating addiction, if you're hiding that from your partner, you've already just by definition, not, you're not in the space or living up to what intimacy truly is, which is, you know me, you can see all of me, I know all of you. No, you're hiding something from them. So it is so detrimental. And I've said, like I said earlier, it's kryptonite to intimacy. It damages the partner's self-esteem, or at least it does a lot of the time. It can just crush their romantic and sex life. And then like I just said a second ago, uh, one person's holding a secret from the other person. So it is just, it's so destructive. And I have yet to meet the partner of a porn addict who doesn't come in. And I work with the addict, not the partner, but of course I meet the partner. They come in sometimes for the first session who doesn't say, I'm, I should uh, say this in a, in, in a way of the partners who come in and I talk to them have experienced devastating consequences to their self-esteem as a result of the, the porn addiction that their partner has, because it just makes them feel, frankly, not good enough. And that's not the case, but right. it's, it's heartbreaking because that's how they feel. In theory, exactly. 
Absolutely. And again, if you are just tuning into the show, I am talking with Greg Woodhill. He is an MFT and a CSAT, a certified sexual addictions therapist. And he is a licensed psychotherapist who spent thousands of hours working with people on their sex and porn addictions. And you also host a Brave New Man podcast. I want to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, Tell well, us about uh, that. thanks for asking. Yeah, it's uh, the podcast, as you said, it's called A Brave New Man. And what I really just see out in the world and in the media is this brand of masculinity. And I should say it's been around since, you know, as far back as recorded time, which uh, where men are taught that we have to suppress our emotions, where we're taught that we have to maintain an appearance of being hard or tough. And that violence equals power. Violence, right? Not intimacy, not compassion or love or caring, but violence. And going back to the first thing I said, where if you cry or if you talk about shame or hurt or guilt, that there's something wrong with you, that you're just not much of a man. And so I started this podcast to really redefine masculinity. And so I've I preach this healthy masculinity as I see it. And I've had a lot of guests on who work in the field of, of femininity and masculinity, healthy intimacy, coupleships, addictions, and all of those things that interfere. And I redefine masculinity with these four pillars. I'd love to share those pillars with you if that's okay. I would love that. Great. Um, I redefine masculinity as, first of all, being strong. And by strong, I don't mean it in the way that I uh, was saying it just a moment ago of hard or tough or violent, more so strong in that I have a sense of who I am. I have a sense of myself. I am grounded, and I know that I am inherently lovable and valuable. So I don't need to react to every slight from the outside world. So if um, we hang up the phone and you, Carol, say to me, well, that wasn't a very good interview, and I don't think you're very smart, that I don't have to lash out at you. I don't have to say, how dare you, and you're a jerk, and you're horrible. No, I can say, oh, okay, then I I don't like that feedback, but okay, there's that, and I value myself, and even if I am horrible, at <laughs> being interviewed that uh, I still know I'm lovable and I still know that I'm valuable and I have people that love me. That's strong to me. Not strong like beating my chest like, you know, a gorilla or a Tarzan, but more like I'm grounded. I'm rooted into the earth. That to me is a core, a piece of masculinity. And the other one, uh, I'm sorry, the second one is vulnerability, which is I am strong enough in who I am. I can show you my emotions. I don't need to hide my emotions. So I can be vulnerable, and that's a bit of a, um, an oxymoron, that word, as it is vulnerable, because if I'm strong enough to show you that I'm sad or that I feel ashamed or that I feel hurt, then that isn't very vulnerable, is it? It's strong. It's me being saying to myself, my emotions are okay, and I can show them to you. But we call it vulnerability, and I love that word, meaning I can show you the parts inside that are wounded. Uh, and then, and that's okay. And I seek out other people around me who do the same and want that from me. Cause to me, that's a huge part of intimacy. It's a necessary part. So the third pillar is empathetic and loving, uh, men who are curious about other people. How does this feel for you? Not let me tell you about me and that's how I need you to do it. Uh, but rather 
I love you because I see you as inherently vulnerable. I'm sorry, inherently valuable and inherently lovable as well. So I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to care about what you go through and I'm going to have empathy for you, which means I have emotional resonance for what other people are, are going through. It's an inclusive way of living as opposed to exclusive. And then finally, assertive. That's the fourth pillar is being assertive. Masculinity being I know what I want. I'm willing to move forward in the direction of getting it. And that could be in a relationship. That could be in a job or a personal project or a million other things. I don't have to. I don't have to hide my needs from myself or other people. I'm going to move forward toward what I need. And by the way, that's a great quality. And masculine doesn't just mean that that's for men. We all have these, these traits, these beautiful traits inside of us, <laughs> happily for women and sadly for men. In my experience, women come, uh, come to these uh, pillars that I'm preaching a lot easier than men. It's one of the reasons that through all my life I've had great female friendships. I've gravitated toward a lot of women and friendships in my life because women can naturally do some of these things I'm talking about, where for men it needs to be learned from the ground up, I'm finding, some of these things. And assertiveness is not aggressiveness. Going back to inclusive versus exclusive, inclusive assertiveness is I know what I want and what I need, but I know that you have needs and wants as well. So I'm going to go after what I want, but I'm not going to take from you so that I can have more. I'm not going to take your needs out of consideration just to make sure I get what I want. And in fact, unfortunately, in this, you know, the opposite of what we're talking about has been referred to for quite a while now as toxic masculinity, which to me doesn't shame masculinity at all. It's talking about a specific brand of masculinity that we've been taught for so long that to me is an awful example. So we see that so much right now in politics. Empathy, curiosity, and compassion <laughs> vanish from politics. I'm not sure how much it was there to begin with, but it's zero, all but zero now. So if I'm aggressive, then I'm going to say, this is what I believe. I don't care what you believe, and I'm going to get what I want done. If I'm assertive, I'm going to say, I know this is what I want and need. Now, how is this going to affect the people that came before me, the people that are here now, and the people that come after me, after I'm dead even, you know, decades or centuries later, how are my decisions going to affect other people? That's inclusive in our assertiveness. So these are the types of things that I love working with the men who I see who are recovering from sex addiction, recovering from porn addiction, and for the first time for many of them realizing like, oh my gosh, I can embrace these things. I can have a great, powerful life now that I've taken this drug out of myself. And by the way, Men who I've worked with who use pornography in an, in an overabundant way or in an addictive way, a lot of the time that's where they're looking for power because they don't feel like they have power out about in the world. So they're substituting for feeling like a powerful person in the world by using the porn and seeing other people humiliated, put down, dominated, and that's substituting for how they want to feel in their real life, and it is toxic and it is dangerous because they're not really getting to the underlying issue that makes them want to pursue that in the first place. That was a mouthful, Carol. Well, that was a mouthful, but, you know, those four pillars are incredible. Is there anywhere that they can read about that, Greg? Is that on your website? 
Josh, it should be, but I don't think it is. It's on the um, on the uh, pilot episode of A Brave New Man, which is available anywhere you can get podcasts. I believe in the in the description of the episode, I've written some of that out, but certainly in the actual audio of the episode, which unlike the rest of my episodes, my pilot episode is just me, just me talking for, I'm not sure how long it was, 25 minutes or so. Um, all the rest of uh-huh. them I have, I'm interviewing people, but it is me just talking about these four things we talked about. So they can get a healthy dose of the that if they want to listen to the pilot. Okay, and that pilot is a Brave New Man podcast, and you can get that through iTunes, Stitcher, all the normal places that you can get a podcast. All right, I want to ask you one. I I want to talk about emotions for a minute because obviously you do have the belief that woven in the many themes of pornography are emotions such as anger and hurt and shame and inadequacy. And and so can you tell us a little bit more about why you believe that that is woven into the usage of porn? Yeah. Well, I think that's the reason why people have gravitated toward this more violent form of pornography that exists today. What, um, What I know to be true is that people have unresolved issues. I have them. We all have them. Uh, some to you know a deeper extent than others and when people have underlying issues they haven't healed or dealt with around abuse or shame or hurt or inadequacy or anger slash rage that they look for ways to express that in an in an attempt to heal it so i believe that they're I've said this many times that the intention of your addiction is positive. The intention, not the outcome. The outcome is horrendous and sometimes life-threatening. But the intention is I want to feel better. So I say that to the men I work with. Your addiction is trying to help you. It's been trying to help you for many years. The problem is it's lying to you. It's lying to you by saying that it can help you. So – what I see happen, and I, you know, uh, you've talked about this as well, this term eroticized rage that Patrick Carnes coined many years ago, is when people's arousal template, what turns them on, is actually an expression of unresolved pain, hurt, shame, rage inside of themselves. So an example that I find over and over again, Carol, and the men that I work with, it's When I was in high school, the beautiful girl or boy wasn't interested in me. I wanted the cheerleader. I wanted the captain of the the football team. I wanted the most popular. I was in love or I wanted to be sexual with or romantic with, and they never liked me, and they always rejected me or that they were bullied around that, that they have this – they end up having this deep, seated resentment around a particular gender. So let's take a heterosexual boy who grows up and to be a man. It doesn't matter if he grows up to be a handsome guy who dates all kinds of different women and whatever. If he has this unresolved issue of inadequacy, and I put that in quotes, of feeling inadequate or feeling hurt or ashamed, that it so often translates into wanting to see women in pornography degraded, humiliated, dominated. 
because somewhere inside of them, they're hurting so badly and they feel, and their unconscious mind feels like that is going to help them express this feeling by seeing somebody treated so badly because it's basically taking a representation, a projection of the girl that they had such a crush on that never liked them or the many, many girls that didn't, and watching that beautiful woman be dominated. So it's like they're getting their revenge. It's like they're getting to act out all of the things they wish they could have done in order to feel powerful. And in order to feel powerful, that unresolved place inside of them needs someone else to be hurt or humiliated. So they, without realizing it, it's on loop. It's on loop. It's not like they see it five or ten times and think, oh, good, now I got that out of my system. It's their unconscious mind trying to work through this sense of shame and inadequacy, but it has become wired into their brain as what they're turned on by, what they think is hot. So they don't realize that in many cases they're re-traumatizing themselves or, or just going deeper and deeper into that rage, and they're not giving themselves the opportunity to deal with the hurt that lies underneath it. Now, when they can heal that hurt, the need and desire to see other people hurt or humiliated, it dissipates and it dissipates a lot. But it is such a sad thing because of the covert nature of it. It's sad because they don't realize that they're seeking out an expression of their shame. It's just now become, oh, this is just the kind of porn I watch. I just like to see people being hit and spanked and degraded and, and a lot of things that you know uh, uh, I would have to use very, very explicit language to say, which I won't hear. But basically, I want to see this thing done to people over and over again because it makes that part of their unconscious mind feel adequate and powerful if only for five to ten minutes. And so when we stop somebody from using that as their crutch, we can deal with the pain and shame from high school in the example I gave. We can deal with them feeling that they are still to this day inadequate, not enough. Even though it's not true, we can deal with it because they're not out acting it out sexually with their pornography over and over again. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, Greg, this has been such a riveting conversation, and it's always nice to talk to somebody who really shares the same values because, you know, there are 1,800 mm-hmm. of us around the world, yep. and yep. understandably, many of us have different values. So, and sure. like you said earlier, that's absolutely okay, but it's really nice when you're talking to another expert who believes in it the same way that you do. So, I just want to ask you one last question before we end because we've got a minute left. I need to know, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they contact you? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, My website is my name, Greg Woodhill, G-R-E-G-W-O-O-D-H-I-L-L.com, gregwoodhill.com. On there, there are links to the podcast, which you talked about earlier, and also a contact me form that they can just click and fill out uh, and send me an email. So I'm always open to consult, and if they ever want to talk to me about their own issues, I am a, a licensed therapist in California, so I can only work with clients in California. But I'm always happy to be a resource for other professionals or addicts who are looking for some guidance. It's my pleasure to do so, and gregwoodhill.com is where they can find me. Thank you so much, Greg. Continued success and keep me posted on other projects. Let's talk soon. 
Thank you, Carol. Thanks for the work you do, and thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. That was Greg Woodhill, and obviously he knows his stuff. Hey, we're going to catch you next week, same place, same time. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a great week. And we'll talk again next week for more sex help. Carol, the coach.